because we got time. Uh, I wanted to open up for questions if anybody has any that they they saw going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and, and I do have some things to say about Ecclesiastes tonight, um, but I know Sunday night's a little more different for you guys. It's more like a Sunday school, so I, I did want to open that up as, as we get going. Um, like I said, Ecclesiastes is one of those books that you got to be careful you don't take out of context. Uh, you've got to pay very careful attention to to where you are, what he's saying, why he's saying it there. Um, so I gave the illustration this morning. Uh, Solomon will say things like, you know, we all know that like animals and man all go to the same place. And we're like, no, we don't know that. Solomon's it's like, okay, but he's talking about dying. You know, so he's talking about like, we're all going to die. So under the sun, it makes no difference. Which, of course, we understand what he's meaning by that based on this morning. And uh, so, so I wanted to open it up in case you did any looking into it and there's anything in Ecclesiastes... Um, so I'll just start off with that. Any, any questions you guys have seen, or I would also open it up for comments, things that you've noticed in Ecclesiastes that kind of struck you. Um, the other thing I want to make available, and, uh, I'm, when it comes to Ecclesiastes, I am more of a teacher, uh, than a preacher in, in some regard. Uh, if, as I go through the book, if you have questions, by all means, raise your hand, let me know, uh, and we can, we can pause and kind of go deep into that. There are, there are times where, where Solomon is almost speaking hyperbolically. He's, he's kind of exaggerating things, or he's, like, like, he'll talk to young people, and he'll say things like, yeah, go just, you know, live however you want. And you're like, what? You know, but, it, but what his point is, is go live how you want, but understand that God will judge you for it. You know, and, and so... You gotta, you gotta always piece the last part of what he's about to say with the really extreme statement that you're kind of thrown off by. Uh, and so there are going to be things. Um, before we get in, let me. Uh, I, I mentioned that I would talk a little bit about some of the stuff that happened at camp this summer. Uh, just for those of you, I know it's Missions Emphasis Month, and, and uh, you guys, I believe you support John and Audrey, uh, who are the directors of camp. So I wanted to share a little bit about that. Um, I actually had to, to take a few notes just so I remembered the details. Um, this summer, so, so let me give you a little bit of background just so you understand what's going on. Uh, Wolf Mountain, we run camps all season. So like all year long we have camps. So we're in the middle of our ladies retreat season. Uh, coming up in a few, in about a month, we're going to have youth rally. And uh, youth rally is basically this big, big camp that we can just pull out all the stops for and just have fun. Uh, so this year's youth rally is rendezvous in the OK Corral. Uh, and so we're going to turn our basketball court and upper hill area into like, you know, Tombstone, Arizona and a mine and a little Indian village and a fishing pond and you know so we're just we'll, we'll see how it turns out um, but we're gonna have a lot of fun with it and uh, this year I'm kind of looking forward to it because what we're doing is normally there's a winner of the week where they they get to take home a trophy and and display it what we're doing this year is each group so it, it, whoever comes from your church they're working together and they're trying to earn as many tokens as they can and each token is custom tailored to an event so if they Honestly, there's one, if you catch a fish, you, you, you get a token. Uh, and so it's, it's stuff that's really simple like that, or the team that ends the day with the most money in the bank, or the team that finds gold, or the team that you know, joins the tribe, you know, whatever. There's, there's all sorts of things you can do, and you get tokens for all of them. And then the team that wins the most tokens by the end of the day gets the, the big achiever, which is you won the most stuff. And so they get to take that home. And so each church is going to go home with like a, a plaque, that they can customize with the tokens they won, however many they won. And uh, 
I am recommending to each group to bring nerf guns because you are going to be allowed to attack the other teams and take some of their stuff. Uh, but if you attack them within the confines of the town, the townspeople will put you in jail or the Boot Hill Cemetery. Uh, you know, one of those things. And uh, so that's, that's a camp that's coming up that I'm really looking forward to. And we're, we're doing preparations even now, designing stuff and building stuff. And uh, I've just been pulling all this stuff out of storage and like, what can we do with it? I think we can do something with it. So uh, it's just, it's fun. It's one of those camps where we can just try out ideas that we wouldn't do anywhere else. Um, so that, again, looking forward to it. I think it'll be really, really fun. Uh, but you're probably going to have a lot of people shooting each other with Nerf guns, because why not? And uh, so that's, you know, I figured you got to get a true feeling of, you know, Tombstone, Arizona. It's appropriately named. Um, and uh, so, so it's been fun. And uh, the, the other thing is, we, like I said, we do camps year-round. And summer camps are one of those times where typically we, we recruit for counselors. So, so we go around to the different schools and churches, and uh, we get counselors, and they come, and they work with us all summer. Needless to say, but I'll say it anyway, COVID kind of put a, a damper on the whole recruiting trip thing. I think we had like one, maybe two recruiting trips. You know, It's kind of hard to get staff when you can't go to them and get them. Uh, and then what we're finding more and more is a lot of parents are basically saying, uh, California? I don't know that I want to send you to California. Uh, come on. It is the outskirts of Nevada. And we're in Nevada County, too. Um, so it's weird how that works. But, but they don't they don't like that idea. And, and, and so it's hard. Um, colleges are becoming ridiculously expensive. Uh, some of the cheaper Christian colleges are sometimes upwards of $30,000 a year. We cannot afford to give you that much money. As much as we would love you to, to be able to do that, we can't. And so it's really a step of faith. And, and there's a lot of college students who, who don't accept that offer for various reasons. And sometimes it's honoring parents. Sometimes it's just, I need to get a job to pay college. And so that, coupled with uh, the other issue, which was because of COVID, we could not be mixing groups of people from different regions in a cabin like we normally do. You put those two things together and you go, how do we have camp? So what we had to do is we had to ask churches, hey, you need to send your own counselor with your group. Now, the funny thing is there's a lot of churches that do that already. Uh, and we, we learned from a lot of groups, they were like, oh yeah, we're used to this. This is weird. And we're like, well, it's not what we normally do. Uh, but they were like, oh no, we do this all the time. And there's some where we're like, we wouldn't come if we couldn't be our own counselors. And then there's others who couldn't come because they had to be their own counselors. So with all those difficulties, we probably saw about half the normal number come to teen camp that we normally would. And uh, this year's theme, uh, we were studying faith, and so we were really digging into the life of Abraham and uh, it was a transcontinental railroad theme, like I said, just cutting edge, like you know, nail-biting excitement. Um, but but I try to I try to do my best. Uh, that, that's a story for another time. But what we saw is we saw a lot of groups come that didn't normally come. And I just want to give you some of the numbers, some of how God was faithful to us this year. Uh, we saw between 15 and 20 people get saved. Uh, and so across the junior camp and the teen camp, we saw a good number get saved. And and again, that's that's with our numbers being about half they normally are. And God let us see that. And so that, that, for the first part, was was really, really cool. Now, we don't know the exact number, obviously, because there are times where kids get saved and they don't tell anyone, or you know, we hear this number from this source and this number from that source, and we're like, eh, between 15 and 20. All right? There are times where we're doing testimony campfire on Friday night, and someone stands up, and they're like, I got saved this week. And we're like, you do what? Oh, well, that's cool. Uh, you know, and, and it, like literally, we've had people get saved at testimony campfire because they're like, he got saved, he got saved, he got I want to get saved. You know? <laughs> Well, 
then get saved. Uh, and, and so that's, that's just kind of the cool thing. Um, we had one group that was, uh, basically it was a community center. So I believe it was out of Loomis or Lodi. I, I keep mixing those two cities up. I don't know why, but it, it, I do. And, and it was a community center, and basically most of the kids that are there were unchurched. They were just all friends of like the one kid who was from the church. And uh, so we just had this huge group of kids who, again, were all from a community center. They had a basic knowledge of the Bible, but, but very, very new. And uh, their youth leaders were, were very excited, very into it. But, but again, they were just, this was a group we didn't get to normally serve, but their normal camp was shut down, so they came to us. And so we got to see the gospel given. We didn't see a whole lot of fruit that week, at least that we got to harvest. Um, but the neat thing about planting is hopefully down the road, someone will get to, to harvest that fruit. And it's a community center, and it's basically where they open it up to say, we don't want you guys hanging out at the skate park or the basketball court because it's not safe, so come here. And so you've just got all these community kids who are just coming in and, and getting to hear the gospel and be around kind of a good atmosphere. And so that was one of the groups we got. And so, we, like I said, we got to see about 15 or 20 salvations. Uh, as far as surrender to full-time ministry or what God would have for them, we got to see about 30. Um, so that was, that was really, really cool. And uh, what, what's amazing, the way camp works is... Uh, camp is simply like a shot in the arm. It, it's a booster. Uh, we, we work on what's called the second voice principle. And it's it's the weirdest thing. And if you've ever been a teacher and then like someone else came in and told your, your students like the same thing you had been teaching the whole time and then suddenly they listen and you're like, that's what I've been saying the whole time. Uh, but it, sometimes it just takes a different tone of voice. Sometimes it just takes someone with a different experience and it just, it clicks for some reason. Uh, and I remember doing that. When I, when I taught chapel back at the school I used to teach at, I mean, I would teach this stuff, I would run camps for these kids, and then the evangelists would come in, and the kids would get saved. And I'd be like, I mean, I'm happy, but I've been telling you that for a year. Uh, but sometimes it just takes someone else coming in and saying the same thing. And that's really how camp works. And so it's not trying to tread new ground, it's not trying to break, you know, oh, brand new. No, it's like the same exact thing they've been hearing, but somehow hearing it from that guy, it clicks. The other way it works is they're cut off from the world for a solid week, and then they have, we figured it out one time, it's about a solid month's worth of, of preaching times over the course of that week. How it works, they've got Monday evening service, they've got devos in the morning, and then they got chapel in the morning, and then time they talk with their counselor, and then they have an evening service. And so just over the first day, like 24 hours, they've heard the Bible five different times. You think about what that does to someone over the course of a week while they're cut off from all their worldly influences. By about Thursday, it's almost a science. We call it victory day. Because by Thursday, things start to break. And kids that were otherwise super hard and tough are just giving in. And you're like, it's just, it, it's like the Holy Spirit can finally be heard because the world has been turned off. And, and so that's kind of the cool thing. And so that's why you see decisions at camp. It's not anything unique about camp other than they're cut off from the world and bathed in scripture and it's just that different environment. Things just click. It, it, it's weird. Um, and so we got to see 30, uh, 30 plus kids surrender. What was really cool, uh, and I, I was just astounded by this one, I got to work with a lot of the sponsors, which that's, that's I don't know where that name comes from. I, I guess I could figure out if I really wanted to. Uh, but, but the sponsors are the names we give to the adults who bring the campers, like the chaperones. All right, just, I guess it sounds better than chaperones. And I guess sponsors comes because sometimes they pay the way. I, I, I don't know. But anyway, that's our term for, for the adults who come along. We got to see two adults surrender to like full-time youth ministry. 
And so it was kind of cool because, you know, here are guys who are kind of skeptical and not knowing, you know, exactly, ah, I don't know about this, 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 I don't, I don't, uh. but then by the end of the week, they're like, oh, we need to kickstart our youth group again. Like, we need to get our youth group back going, or I'm just, I'm in this. Because they got to spend the week with their cabin, and they're actually spending the week with their youth group, and then they're realizing, oh, oh yeah, yeah, this is necessary. You know, not, not the camp thing, the youth ministry thing. Like, we, we need to be investing in these teens. Uh, and it was, just, it was just really, really cool to, to kind of sit back and catch up. And, and uh, so that's, that's just kind of how it was. It was worth it. It was just really cool to sit back and watch God work. Uh, we got to see a bunch of decisions about devotions and other things like that, too. And, uh, but that, that was just cool to see all those salvations, to see all those surrender to God's will, and then to see at, you know, two adults who you don't normally see surrender to full-time ministry and say, like, we're, we're getting the youth group back and going. Uh, and so it was, it was just cool, and it was, it was exciting. So if you guys can keep praying for us, obviously we still have all those staffing needs and all those, those things like that. And I actually, uh, later on this month, the 31st actually, I'm flying out of San Francisco to fly to Pensacola uh, to talk about uh, California as a mission field. And so I'll get to talk to a bunch of college students and uh, do some recruiting for camp. So pray for me, because one, I get to fly on an airplane for that long, which isn't pleasant. And then, uh, and then get to spend a few days in Florida and then fly back. And uh, so that, that'll be neat. I'm, I'm looking forward to it partially. But uh, anyway, if you guys can keep us in prayer, we would, we would very, very much appreciate it. Uh, anyway, I've given you enough time. Uh, are there any questions about Ecclesiastes? Anything uh, that you guys have noticed that you have questions about? Uh, otherwise, I'm going to get into the text and we're going to kind of pick up where we left off this morning. Yep. Sorry, do I... Uh, I think he ended well in a way. Um, so Ecclesiastes is, is neat because it kind of starts and ends with these bookends. Almost, I mentioned it this morning. It's almost like the, the, the speaker, the, the preacher, is getting up and talking to a, a, a group. Um, that's, that's what the word Kohelet means, the, the preacher. It, it's a guy who speaks to an assembly. And so what he's doing is he's taking his life experiences and he's getting up and he's saying, guys, learn, learn from this. Now, obviously, as, as you go through Ecclesiastes, you don't see a whole lot of mention of his idolatry. You don't see a lot of those things brought up. So um, that, that's why there's some people who, when they dig into the book of Ecclesiastes, they don't think Solomon wrote it. And there's various reasons for that. I, I believe he did. I don't think him getting into his idolatry is really helpful to the point of the book. And so he, he did get into idolatry. Um, the main reason he got into idolatry was for self-preservation reasons. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure how familiar you guys are with just all the, the background of that, but basically what you would do is, is back then, if you wanted to protect your kingdom, you would marry into the family of neighboring kingdoms, and you know, you're not going to attack a son-in-law, so hey, we're allies now. It says he married many princes and uh, princesses, and, and you know it, it, the princess down here in Egypt, and this and this and this, and, and with those women they brought in all of their gods, and he started, whether sincerely or not, he started getting into the worship of those gods, and for that God judged him. So that's why it's kind of hard to say whether he finished well or not, because it seems based on the book that he repented by the end and, and saw what he should have been doing. So that would be a good end. But God still did pretty severely judge him for, for the things that he did.
Any other questions on the book? So like I said, as I, as I go through the rest of this text, uh, if, if you have questions or if you have a, a comment, feel free to raise your hand. Let me know. Um, I, I, I want to interact uh, as much as possible. Um, let's open in prayer. And then what we're going to do is we're going to kind of dig into where is Solomon leading us through this book. And so chapters 2 through 11. I'm just kidding. We're not going to actually do that. All right. But uh, let's open in prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into the text. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, Lord. I thank you so much for all you've given us. I thank you for the opportunity to, 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 to teach through the book of Ecclesiastes and just kind of talk about Solomon, the wisdom that he had, and the, the life lessons we can learn from this. Uh, God, I just thank you. Uh, I pray that you would be with my tongue, help me to be clear, help me to be appropriate, and uh, just cover the, the, the topics that need covering. Thank you, Lord, and I thank you for preserving this book for us, and I pray this in your name. Amen. So we are, we are here in Ecclesiastes, and uh, remember I talked this morning, and, and this morning I brought up this idea of follow your guide. So this morning, we spent a long time kind of talking about the key words of Ecclesiastes. And, and the first key word was this idea of vanity. Uh, and that's where I, I love the, as you study it out, you'll notice that like other versions start translating things other ways. I love the way the King James does it, because what it does is it just simply says, Hevel, we're going to translate it vanity. Okay? What you'll find is as you study the book of Ecclesiastes through commentaries and stuff, there are various other translations that are trying to interpret it for you. I love the King James, doesn't even try. It just says, we're just going to say vanity. But as you read that word vanity, you know the underlying Hebrew word is hevel, which means vapor. Okay, that's, that's the word you're looking at in the Hebrew. This word vapor, like I said, has this idea that as you reach out for something that looks like it's substantial, looks like it's there, you go to reach for it and it vanishes as you grab onto it. So he's talking about, I'm trying to find satisfaction in life. I reach out. I think it's substantial. I think it's there. I think I've achieved it. Boom, vapor. It vanishes. And so it can have the idea of things that I don't quite understand. And so you'll see him like pondering certain events and going, it's just vanity. And, and what he means by that is, it's just a frustration. It, it's a, I, I can't quite grasp it. And so, so this word vapor takes on a lot of nuance as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you translate vanity as vapor and think about all the implications of the word vapor, you start to see the little little pictures that Solomon is painting throughout the book. Sometimes it really is like will-o'-the-wisp, you know, I'm being led astray by this distraction. Sometimes it is, I thought I, I thought I figured it out, and then right when it was like right there, it just went poof. Again, vapor. So, so, so think vanity is this idea of vapor, something that's fleeting, something that's just like aggravating. Then we talked about the vexation of spirit. Vexation of spirit, we use the illustration of herding a bunch of cats. All right? Not herding, herding. All right? Uh, my New England accent's coming out a little bit. Uh, but as you, as you herd the cats in from one door and try to get them out the other, it's just causing pain. It's frustration. It's aggravation. It's a task you can't accomplish. Okay? And so he talks about all these things in life that he thought would bring profit, and he says their vanity on one hand is in their fleeting, and I can't quite grasp them, and their vexation of spirit on the other, which means they're just just damaging. Okay? Like falling into a barbed wire fence. He's like, it just, just hurts. All right? And then, not every single time you see it, but typically, when you see him musing on things that we would look at and go, I don't agree with that, Solomon, you will look around and you will see the expression under the sun. And the expression under the sun is an expression that basically means, for the moment, 
for sake of argument, let's pretend God doesn't exist. For the moment, let's pretend that there is nothing above the sun. Let's, let's just deal with the world as it is, sun and below, and let's deal with the logical outcroppings of these ideas. So if you can understand those three key ideas, a lot of this book is going to start falling into place. It's going to protect you from misinterpreting the book. It's going to help you kind of put yourself in the shoes of Solomon. And like I said, Solomon is going to get, he's going to go through his like his resume and he's going to get to the end of it and he's going to say, what could you possibly do after the king has done all these things? Pretty much only what the king has already done. All right, and so you'll, you'll see that expression and that's kind of where we ended this morning. Solomon is spending all this time digging into his life experience and then saying, all right, can you, can you one-up me at all? You can't. So you need to trust my wisdom on this. So with that being said, let's now dig into where he's leading us. First thing, the first point that Solomon is trying to lead us to is this idea that you need to understand the end of the road. Okay? Ecclesiastes is not the only book that does this. Like I said, I've referenced 1 Peter a few times today. 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, starts talking about the idea of our salvation that is on its way. It talks about God. He is, he is going to save us in the end. Like there, there is salvation coming. And so as you suffer through the things of this life, you remember the salvation he has waiting for you at the end. So you live in light of the fact that that rescue is coming and you stick with it. Solomon is going to take this same idea, but he's going to take it in a slightly different direction. And we don't have time to go through all the passages because they are all over the place. But the point Solomon is making throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is, remember the end of the road. And that there is an end of the road coming where the same fate is going to happen to all of us. Now we've seen over the last year and a half that people do not respond well to impending death. I mean, they don't. They, they, they panic. They freak out. They buy everything of toilet paper they can find. Like, it, is, it is weird to see what people do when they are faced with the prospect of death. And that's why we try not to think about it too much. We don't want to dwell on this idea of death. But as you go through the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is over and over and over again bringing death to the forefront to say, as you live your life, you need to live with death in mind. Because there's a whole lot of stuff that you would do that Solomon says, hey, you just earned all that money. What's going to happen when you die? Someone who didn't sacrifice their whole life to earn that money is going to inherit it all, and you don't know how they're going to spend it. And that's a point he makes. He's like, you're going to leave it, and you don't know who that person is. You may think you do, but at the end of the day, you may not have any idea who ends up with everything you've spent your life earning. I remember I used to work at a camp in the desert. Some of you might know Ironwood uh, down in Southern California. When I was working there, there was a family who donated, it had to be hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of mounts. Animal pelts, whole mounts, shoulder mounts. I mean, like, it was like, you know, imagine like a U-Haul trailer pulling up and all the dead things were being unloaded from the, tra- like, like, they donated so much dead stuff to camp. I mean, deer, Uh, I don't know if they gave us a bison. There was like sheep and boar. I mean, it was basically some guy's entire collection that he had collected over years. An avid hunter. He had all the animals. And when his family inherited it after he died, they were like, we don't want this. And so they're like, camp, middle of the desert, 
yeah, it looks manly. Sure, you guys want like thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of dead stuff? And the director's like, of course. Uh, and so like we were finding places. Like literally it was like, we can take these deer antlers and there'll be a coat rack on this wall. And like we had a big log logged building and you walk in and it was just like animals everywhere. And it's like, okay, this is getting a little too much. Uh, I mean, it's like a Cabela's. You know, you walk in and you're like, I can't move. There's so much stuff. But the point is, here's a guy who spent his life hunting and collecting and mounting and he had all this stuff and he's like, I'm going to leave this all to my kids. And his kids are like, no, you're not. Uh, you guys want them? Sure. <laughs> you know? and, and, and I don't know that you'll ever get a chance to, but guys, if you ever go down to that camp and you go to their office and you go into the guy's bathroom, you walk up to one of the stalls you don't see it from the entrance, but you turn around and there's a full-mounted mule deer staring at you. And you don't see it until you walk in and you turn around and you're like, huh, that's a full-size deer. <laughs> they needed a place for it. And so they stuck it there. You don't know when the end is coming. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Let me show you how he, he, he deals with this. Like I said, as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm not, I'm not trying to teach you every bit of Ecclesiastes. I'm trying to give you the, the ammo so that as you go through the book, you can start looking for these themes. But throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he talks about death all the time. And so that's the first place that he's guiding us. He's trying to lead us to this idea of you need to live in light of the end of the road. Where, where is that end of the road? What, what is that going to look like? And in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, I'm going to start reading just a little bit before that, and specifically Ecclesiastes 11:8. You can stay there in chapter 12, which is like, you know, the same page. But Ecclesiastes 11 verse 8, it says this: "But if a man live many years and rejoice in them all, yet him let yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. All that cometh is vanity." Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes. But this is where you have to really pay attention to context because that first part of the verse sounds really bad. He's telling young people, basically, walk however you want to. And you're like, hold on, that doesn't sound like Bible. But look at the last half of the verse because then what he says is he says, but know thou for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. So he says, go ahead. Go ahead and live however you want. But understand that at the end of the day, God will judge you for it. And then he continues with the next thing. He says, therefore... If you really want to live well, if you really want to live the life that, that God means for you, remove sorrow from thy heart and put away evil from thy flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. And this is what he tells us to do. Verse 1 of, of chapter 12. Like I said this morning, chapter 12, the whole first part is a big extended poem on getting old and dying. And I want you to notice some of the imagery. But again, this, is, this plays in because what Solomon is trying to do is he's trying to draw our attention to the end of the road so that we live in light of it. Chapter 1, uh, verse, sorry, verse 1. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun, or the light, or the moon, or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after the rain. And, and what it is, is, is a lot of pictures of your eyesight going, your ears going, your teeth going, your body bending over and, and you can't quite get back up anymore. I mean, that, look at these images and you'll start to see that. In the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble. Starting to lose control of your body, you're, you're quivering a little more. They shall tremble. The strong men shall bow themselves. 
The grinders shall cease because they are few. Again, an image of the teeth coming out. And those that look out the windows are darkened. Your eyesight's going. And he goes on, extending all the way out till the end. And then he says, verse 6, Or ever the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, or the wheel be broken at the cistern, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity. And so he's, he's painting this picture to, to show where the end is and saying, as you have the ability, uh, again, he's specifically speaking to young men because he's, he's, he's talking to a group. But again, the, the implication here is if you have any strength left in you, if you have any ability to serve at all, then remember your creator and serve. Um, and I, I find one of the most beautiful things through the years I've known of is, is people who do not have the physical strength to serve who spend all their time in prayer. And I, I think that's an absolutely beautiful thing that, that even if you're looking and you're saying, I do not have the physical ability to, to do this, well, you have the ability to pray. And, and that's actually more powerful than anything else you could do. And so I think there's something to be said about that where, where you remember your creator, you remember the ability and the strength, even the limits that he's given you, and you use them to the fullest extent while you still have those functions. You, you use them fully. And so that's where Solomon is leading us. He's saying, okay, there's all this stuff you could live for. There's all this stuff you could be doing. There's all this stuff you could be focusing on. But what's the main thing? What's the important thing? And look where he keeps going here, uh, verse 9. Moreover, because, and this is almost like where he's stepping back and he's starting to wrap up his sermon. He says, moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. And I think that's important. The Bible talks a whole lot about the older men teaching the younger and the older women teaching the younger. Because the life experiences and the things that you have been through that you can now pour into the life of the next generation and say, don't go down this road. Trust me. And, and, and that's where Solomon, he sets in order many proverbs. Uh, the, the, the preacher that uh, Pastor Lynn is, is helping out, he was speaking for our camp this summer, and he was going through in his head all the adages that he would teach his kids. And he was on like 50-something of them. And they're just these little proverbs, these little quick snippet wisdom bits that he hoped to ingrain into his kids that he's like, I just want you guys to know this. And that's what Solomon was doing. Solomon was seeking out and set in order many proverbs so that the next generation had it. And, and, and I mean, we still have them to this day. And, and it's cool because with the proverbs... As you study out the ancient cultures, he was pulling some of those proverbs from like Egypt. He was pulling them from other areas and just adapting them to make them true. And so you'll find some very interesting similarities when you study Solomon's proverbs and some of the Egyptian proverbs. You're like, oh, that's almost the same proverb. And it's like, yeah, because it was true. It's the truth. And it, yes, like that, the root of that proverb came from Egypt, fine. But Solomon took it and adapted it so that he could pass on the truth of that proverb and we have it to this day. And, and it's just really, really neat to look at how Solomon did that. And he set in order all these Proverbs. But then look at this, verse 10. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and the word that was written was upright, even the words of truth. And so that's this idea. We need to understand the end of the road and, and what it is. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with C.T. Studd. Uh, it's mission emphasis this month, so C.T. Studd is one of those missionaries you really should get to know. Uh, he was an amazing missionary, uh, just did a lot of travel, did a lot of, again, just, just amazing things. He wrote a, a really long poem. Um, I would 
I would recommend you, you looking at, I believe it was called Only One Life. And, and again, it's a, it's a really long poem. But I'll give you the, the stanza that really stuck out to me with this poem. He says this, Only one life, yes, only one, now let me say thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say t'was worth it all. Only one life, t'will soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, t'will soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burnt out for thee. And again, the, the whole poem is very, very beautiful, but, but those stanzas of a missionary who gave up everything to go to the mission field and win souls for Christ. And he was a very successful athlete. and I mean, he was a very well-known guy back in his day, and he gave it all up to be a missionary. And he's saying, all that I gave up, all the prestige, all the prominence, everything, it was worth it if I could say I did it all for you. And, and I've been a missionary in California for about six years. And it has been amazing to sit back and see the blessings that God has done. It, it has been unbelievable to see the things that God has allowed me to be part of. And also to see how God has provided. And so I would challenge you. like God says to test him. God says to give you know, cheerfully and do those things, I would challenge you, if, if you can't physically go to the mission field, find a missionary or a cause that you say, that, that is a cause I can get behind, and say, I am just going to go all in. Because God will provide. And, and I remember there was a time where I, I was more on the financially well side of things, and God challenged my heart and said, give, 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 give. And I was like, that's a lot of money, God. I don't know that I want to. And he says, well, you... You gave into the challenge and you promised to give so much a month. And I'm like, yeah, but when you multiply that by 12, that's a lot of money. And he's like, he loves a cheerful giver. And is it really faith if you're keeping in reserve like 99% and giving the one? Like, is, is that really faith? You know, you're, oh, I can give up a coffee a day. You know, that, that's that. And what's been amazing, I gave. And you can talk to people at camp and you can get the same story. In my lifetime, I have had three different cards given to me. God, God has more than given back. There was one time I preached at a church and I went down and I covered Sunday school, Sunday morning, and Sunday night. That's, that's not a whole lot of time. And I got a check for over $1,000 from that church. And I was like, wow, I think you had a wrong zero there or something. That's ridiculous. And as I was driving home, the pastor was like, oh, no, like I, I told my people to be generous, so I wanted them to bless you. And I was like, well, they did. And then he called me. He's like, oh, there was another check that came in that we missed, so we'll send that on to you. And I was like, are you kidding me? That check was more than $1,000. And I was like, I think you did. Like, are you, What? I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, be faithful to God. He provides. And, and I'm, I'm not saying that for me. I'm saying that just in general. When you have missionaries, like, like the ones we saw this morning or the, the, the pregnancy center and those things, be a blessing and you will see God return it. I, I don't know how it works, but I can speak from experience in my own life that that's how it works. 
I, I don't know. I don't, I don't get it. And, and so that's why we, we, we look toward the end and we say, God's going to take care of this one way or another. God's going to be glorified and I'm going to live a life that glorifies him living with the end in sight. The, the second thing that, that Solomon is going to focus on here is this idea of God's sovereignty. And this idea that God has control over the situation. Uh, look at um, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Now, there is a really old song. The only reason I bring it up is because it is exactly word for word the beginning of this chapter. Okay? The, the old group, the birds, some of you know them. Uh, they wrote a song called There is a Season, Turn, Turn, Turn. It is word for word, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Straight up plagiarism, all right? Uh, although, if, if I remember correctly, they actually ended up giving most of their money for that song to a Jewish group because they're like, yeah, hey, you gave us the words anyway. Uh, but, but in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it's the cycles of life. And you'll notice some of the cycles in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 are things that you can sort of control, and there's some that you can't. And so it says, to everything there is a season. And a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. And so what you see here is there are some of these events that you could say, well, I sort of have some control over this. But at the grand thing, you don't. You know, you, you, you kind of have to plant crops at a certain time. And you, okay, you can put it off a day or two maybe, but you kind of have to harvest the crops at a certain time. You can't change the cycle of the earth. Uh, you look here, a time to heal and a time to... Ba- you know, and, and so there's times for each of these things. There's a time to be born. Yep, you can't control that one. And there's a time to die. You really can't control that one either. And so what he's doing is Solomon is saying, there are these cycles. There are these things in life that we have to live with that we just can't do anything about. We can't do anything to change them. We can't do anything. I mean, verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. And Solomon builds this whole case to say there are these cycles to life. There are these things you can't control. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? I have seen the travail which God hath given the sons of men to be exercised in it. And then look at verse 11. Solomon, again, is bringing our attention back to God and saying God can do whatever he wants. He will live within his promises, but God can do however it pleases him. And look at this, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. I like to use this illustration. What this is picturing, it's the idea of you are standing in your life and you think you have a firm footing and God comes along and he just gives you enough of a push so that you're off balance and he doesn't let you catch your balance. He just he gives you enough of a push that you're you're just ever slow out of your comfort zone. And the reason he does that is to say, I want to make sure you're still trusting me. Because when our feet are firmly planted and when everything's going our way and it's smooth sailing, we go, I got this. And when, when God comes along and he gives us a little bit of a bump and he gives us a little bit of a push and we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. 
it reminds us of who's actually holding us upright. And so what he's done here, in, in that, with that figure in mind, what he's done here is he's saying, humankind, I have put eternity in your heart to the point that you have just no idea from beginning to end what I'm doing. You, you, ha- you have this narrow window into a narrow window into a narrow window of the grand scheme of things. You try your best to, to kind of peek and look around and make, it's like looking through a pinhole, like you can kind of sort of make out, but good luck, you're not seeing the whole room. You got to trust me. When I say what's in that room is in that room. And that's the idea where God is saying, and, and again, First Peter, you read First Peter and what do you start seeing? God says, I will rescue you. I have a plan. I died on the cross to save you. If I did that, do you think I'm going to treat you flippantly? No. Okay. So when the hard times come, you got to ground yourself on that truth right there. That God is doing things and he doesn't answer to us. And and I think that's a, a powerful statement to stick in the back of our mind that God is going to do what God wants to do. Again, within his character, within his promises. But God is working, and we don't see the whole picture. I love the illustration someone gave. They said it's like a tapestry. You know, when you're looking at the back of a tapestry, he's like, good luck trying to figure out what's on the front side. It's like it's all the loose threads and all the weird colors, and you're going, I have no idea what that is. It doesn't make any sense at all until you turn the tapestry around and go, oh, that was actually really pretty. But not from the back side. And our life is just a piece of it. It's just a, a blip. And we don't know what God is doing. We don't know why he has us here. Um, again, you study out the life of C.T. Studd and this guy who was a famous athlete who was unbelievably successful and God said, give it all up and go off and be a missionary in this backwoods place. And you're like, why? Couldn't you do so much more with fame and celebrity? Like, Couldn't you win so many more people? And God's like, I got a plan. I got something set aside. Don't worry about it. And as long as we say, you know what, God? I trust you. You, you promised it's as good as done. And, and I love that verse where he's saying he has made everything beautiful in his time. He's set eternity in his heart so that man can't figure out all the work that God is doing. And so he says, hey, just keep my commandments. Fear me. That's your whole duty. And again, I, I, I'm not doing it justice, all right? There's so much more I could say on that. Um, but, but again, it, it digs more and more and more into this. Um, Ecclesiastes um, 7.14 uh, is another passage we can, we can hop to. And, and what he's doing here is, is, he is he's digging into you know, what things are good and what things aren't. And so one of the points Solomon's going to repeatedly make throughout this is, is it's not bad to enjoy your life. Again, God's in charge. Enjoy your life. But Ecclesiastes 7.14 says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God also has set the one over against the other to the end that man should find nothing after him. All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness. There is a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. And he's saying, there are things that God does. He sets these, these contradictions, so to speak, against each other. And it just kind of messes with you. And that's the idea of vanity where it's like, I, I don't get it. It's a vapor. Like when I think I can understand it, it, it vanishes. And he uses this illustration of a man who, by all accounts, is a godly man. 
and we, we read Proverbs and it says the godly man is this, this, this. And we're like, so this godly man should live really well, right? That's not how it works. Oh. And then, and then this wicked man where Proverbs is saying this wicked man should suffer all of these nasty things. And we're looking from the outside going, that wicked man sure seems to have stolen the reward of the righteous guy. And that righteous guy sure seems to have stolen the punishment of that wicked guy. That doesn't make sense to me. And what God is doing is he's saying, what you don't see is what I'm doing behind the scenes. What you don't see is like in the book of Job, where God then takes that and opens up the curtain and says, let me show you the behind the scenes so that the guy who lived right and is now suffering seriously, oh, that's what's actually going on. Oh, I didn't see that. And so if I can leave you a study to do on your own. Proverbs is a book of the Bible that I believe is as idealistic as you could get. You push button A, you get result B, everybody's happy. Intentionally, Proverbs is written so as to show how life generally works. But even in Proverbs, you guys will notice, there are times in Proverbs where it'll say things that contradict each other. Bear with me, I'm I'm not saying the Bible contradicts itself. Think about it. Reprove a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceits. What's the very next verse? Reprove not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. That sure seems to be, you know, one says reprove him, and the other says don't. But the condition at the end kind of explains the con- like when and why. And so there are times where Proverbs is intentionally like, you live righteously, good things will happen to you. You live badly, bad things will happen to you. That's just how life works. What Ecclesiastes then comes along and does is says, okay, that is how life works, but not immediately. Not right away. There are times where you lived a righteous life and sure looked like it, you just went through a wicked time. That doesn't make sense to me. And so Solomon is almost just pining over the unfairness of it all and saying, that doesn't make sense. I don't understand this. This is vanity. You know, you've got this righteous man and it's wicked things are happening to him. You've got this wicked man and the righteous things are happening to him. What did... But what he's missing is God can do what God wants to do. God works in his own timetable. And that's why I say you, you should study these three books together because Proverbs, like I said, is the very idealistic how life works. Ecclesiastes kind of digs in and says, let's look at life. Uh, But then what does Job do? Job peels back the curtain on an extremely righteous man who by all accounts, both physical and spiritual, is a man who is someone who fears God, eschews evil, is is perfect before God. And what happens to him? About as every imaginable thing that could happen wickedly. In fact, to the point where you notice some of his friends come along, and they're really good friends for about the first week. I mean, how many of us would sit down with a guy for seven days and not say a word? That's a really good friend. Just sitting with a sorrowing man. But then they open their mouth, and that's where things go downhill. And there is actually a chapter in Job where one of Job's friends comes along and says, you know what happens to bad people's kids, right? Yeah, buildings fall on them. And you're like, Did you seriously just say that? Well, I mean, you must have been doing something bad, Job, because we all know that when you're a bad person, bad things happen to you. 
And you notice what God says at the very end of Job? He comes along and he says, Job, you have said the right thing concerning me. You said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You said, naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he refused to curse God. But then God says, but your friends haven't said that which was right. Because you know what they did? They just automatically assumed because bad things were happening to Job, he must be a really bad guy. So I think it's really helpful to take Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs and put them all together and you get the complete picture. You get the picture of, idealistically, this is what happens. Then you get kind of that, let's look at life, and then you get the behind the scenes and you put them all together and you're like, oh, good things do happen to righteous people. We just don't see the whole picture. Oh, bad things do happen to bad people. We just don't see the whole picture. And I think that's the beauty of putting those three books together to get the whole picture. And so Solomon, he's not only leading us to say, look at the end of the road. He's also looking and saying, we need to trust the sovereignty of God in life situations. There are things that will happen that you do not understand. There are things that happen that don't make sense. You trust God's sovereignty. But then I think the other thing is, and, and it goes along with this, we need to make God our focus. This is not unique to Ecclesiastes. But you need to make God your focus. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5.11 will say things like this. Uh, it says, When goods increased, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? And so he says, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. And his point he's trying to make there in Ecclesiastes 5, 10, and 11 is, stuff can become a really big distraction. The, the, the hunt for gold, so to speak. The hunt for all these trophies and trinkets. Remember we talked about the things Solomon had. It becomes a distraction. It becomes, some, becomes something that draws our attention away from God. So I think that's one of those distractions. Uh, Ecclesiastes 11.9, I'll, I'll read it. You don't have to turn to every single one of these. Uh, but Ecclesiastes 11.9 says things like this, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth. Let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth and walk in the ways of thine heart. But know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Therefore remove sorrow from thy heart and put away evil from thy flesh for childhood and youth or vanity. And, and so I think from this verse you could really get this idea that, that discouragement is going to be a distraction too. The sorrow, the grief, the hard things. Solomon will tell you to remember the hard times. But have you ever noticed those people who, who they're the, the Debbie Downers, so to speak? They're, the, they're always dwelling on the really bad things. I think that can be a distraction from God. I mean, it really can be because you spend all your time like Eeyore, you know, like, oh, so, life's so bad and I lost my tail again. You know, and it's like, you know, and, and okay, those people aren't pleasant to be around. But, but you know the, those people. And so I think there's a level of, there are people who are afraid to enjoy life. They're afraid to enjoy the things that God has given them. I, I know I've mentioned money a few times. Solomon is not in any way saying, don't enjoy the money that God's given you. He's saying, rejoice. He's saying, rejoice with the wife of your youth. Like He's saying to enjoy life. God gave us life as a gift. There's no shame in saying, I'm going to enjoy it. But what Solomon's trying to say is, don't live for it. That should not be your focus. That should not be what you go after. It's something that's a side result of making God your focus. And so I, I think there's, I think distraction can be a, dis, uh, uh, sorry, a discouragement can be a distraction. Um, Ecclesiastes 6.9, this one's, this one's kind of fun. Uh, Ecclesiastes 
is another place here. It says this, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. The way I interpret this one is, I think sometimes dreams can be a distraction. Oh, I just always wanted to be that, and so I left and I gave up, and it's like, well, that might not have been the wisest move. Uh, sometimes what you have right in front of you, the, the sight of the eyes, is better than the wandering of desire. Uh, again, pithy little statement. You know, it's just, it's, it's so profound. But again, it's, it's these things that are trying to distract us off the trail. Possessions and discouragement and dreams, all these, all these things that could possibly drag us away. Um, another one, Ecclesiastes 10 verse 1, uh, says this one. Uh, Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. I just love that. It's so gross and fun. Uh, but, but dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So, so what you have uh, in, in the picture of the day, imagine the, the number of flowers or other things that you would have to press to get the oils required to make a perfume back in that day. So imagine you got this vial and it's just absolutely full. You've been working on it for years. It is a product of hard, hard work. Okay, I, I would almost picture, I believe it was Martha who poured the, uh, the, the alabaster box of incense over Jesus' feet. And it was talking about like a year's wage. I mean, it was a ridiculously valuable thing. Okay, so imagine how much money you can make in a year and then imagining, you know, a container of perfume and how precious that perfume would be. You would not be flippantly like, la, 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 la. you know, no, like that is super precious. Like you, you take a little speck of it and, okay, that's it. That's all I'm putting on because that was worth like 14 bucks. You know, like it, you don't mess with it. But look at this. It says, you've worked hard. You've made this precious ointment and then a fly lands inside of it and makes the whole thing smell like rot. A little fly. A little nasty, grubby little bug and you're like, are you serious? All that work, all that time, all that effort to make that bottle of perfume and a stinking fly landed in it. Literally, stinking fly. And look what he says. With that image in mind, so does a little folly with him who has a reputation for wisdom and honor. I was talking to a pastor just recently, and he talked about this lady in his church who wants to leave the church, and they're trying to encourage her not to leave the church, but she's made so many like snafus in dealing with other people in the church that she's just ashamed now and is just done, and she wants to go to another church where she's not as embarrassed. And he's like, it's fine. We don't mind. Like, don't leave. But you know how it is? Where you kind of ruined your reputation or you kind of blew it and, and, and now you're like, other than that one thing, I was a person of wisdom. Other than that one thing, I was a person of honor. But that one thing just kind of ruined my whole reputation. You know, we, we've all heard of those pastors who've, who've faithfully served, but one night of adultery. And you're like, that sticks with you. In fact, the Proverbs would say it gives you a wound and a reproach that doesn't go away. Why? Because we're human. And that one mark, that one bit of foolishness, that one bit of sin completely erases all the precious ointment that we've earned all up to that point. And so I think another distraction is, just to put it as tamely as possible, foolishness. A moment of foolishness, a moment of, of, of indiscretion, a moment of, ah, I, 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 ah. And so you look at all these things that could distract away. That is why Solomon at the end is going to say, all right, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. What should we focus on? 
how should we live our life? Okay, so, so we know we have to live with the end in mind. We know we have to trust the sovereignty of God in all these things to, to take care of, of keeping us going. All right, we got all these distractions. We got all these things we could chase after. So what do we do? And that's why he's going to come back and he's going to say, one, remember my life. Remember the things that I've done and don't follow that. But let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. We can boil everything in Ecclesiastes down to two things we are to do. Fear God and keep his commandments. And we'd be hard-pressed to have anyone who would have a hard time saying, I don't know if God commanded that or not. Like, his commandments are pretty clear. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of men. And then he gives us that encouragement one more time because of all these things that we could be distracted with. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing. And that goes back to, hey, there's that wicked guy who doesn't seem to be punished. God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing. Ah, there's that righteous guy over there who's living righteously and it does not look like he's getting the reward of the righteous. God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So fear God, keep his commandments. It's all you have to worry about. And so that's why I love the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, There's a lot to it. There's a lot more we could go into, like I said. Um, Before I close, because it is about time to close, I do want to take any other questions now that I've said all that. Um, So if you have an argument you want to start, we 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 got 15 minutes, I think, before Awana gets out. I'm leaving after tonight anyway, so you can you can argue all you want with me. So any any other any questions or comments? Yeah. Uh, Solomon, you mean? I believe so. Uh, the other aspect, I, th- I think, when you study out Solomon's life, Solomon. Look at how he was raised. Look at what was going on around the time Solomon was born. Um, you have the Absalom rebellion. Uh, you have all the mess with David at the end of his life. Before Solomon ever asks for wisdom, he's making some really wise choices. Um, so I think there was a level of, of natural experiential wisdom to, to Solomon's life. Um, David, if you don't remember the end of David's life, he put a lot of things on Solomon that he probably shouldn't have. Um, there was this general David had, and he's like, yeah, I should have taken care of him. Solomon, don't let him, don't let him die a natural death. That's kind of rough to leave to your son who's taking over. And then he's like, oh, and there's this, this Shimei guy. I said I wouldn't kill him, um, but he did curse me a whole bunch when I was on the run. So Solomon, will you take care of him too? Uh, and uh, he just lists out like two or three guys, and he's like, Solomon, take care of these guys for me. And Solomon handles it really wisely. And so you, you study out how he, like one guy he dealt with immediately. Uh, the other guy, he's like, I'm going to give you one chance to, to not do that again. And then the other guy, he's like, you're on house arrest, so as long as you stay in the city, I'm not going to deal with you. And then the guy leaves like three years later, you know, and, and, and so he deals with him. But, but I think you see with Solomon, he had a lot of natural wisdom from experience, but then he had the wisdom to go to God and say, I need supernatural wisdom. There, there's no way I know how to take care of this. Um, and so, so I think God gave him a lot of supernatural wisdom, um, which got him a lot of fame, which then put him in trouble. Um, and so, 
His wisdom, the Bible says, stayed with him. So he knew what was right to do. I think a lot of times he just chose not to do it. Um, so as far as fixing everything, I don't know that he had wisdom in every area. But the, the, oh, like the temple and all that? And, or Yeah, well, the, the cool thing with Solomon is his wisdom was knowing connections, so to speak. So Solomon himself might not have been a good builder, but he knew like, oh, I've got Hiram up here. You're a good builder. Come on down. And then, so part of his wisdom was knowing how to, to delegate and how to work. And so he, he showed a lot of wisdom in knowing who he could rely on in, in some of those things. And David set aside a lot of that beforehand. So um, Solomon gets credit, but David did all the preparing. And then I think Hiram, I think it was Hiram, some... I I don't know. His wisdom seems more of the managerial, if I could put that term on it. Um, skillfulness, I guess, would be a, a thing. So I, I don't know that he like suddenly woke up with the knowledge to do absolutely everything. But God gave him answers and gave him solutions and gave him kind of a supernatural guidance. At least that's my take on it. I, I don't know if someone else has a, a better take than, than that on it. I, any Any other questions? All right, well, I thank you for letting me be with you guys. Uh, I appreciate it. And uh, hopefully you learned something from Ecclesiastes and you can go back and kind of study out the rest of the book and, and double check me. I, I'm more than happy to let you. Um, but, but, but look at this book. St- spend some time studying it. Um, if I could recommend one guy in particular, uh, Jim Berg, uh, he put together a really good study on this. And he focuses a lot on a phrase in the end of Ecclesiastes where it talks about goads. And a, a goad, you know, it's a cattle prod. And he says, the words of the wise are like goads. And so there's, there's, there's wisdom that prods you into doing the thing that you're supposed to be doing. And if you resist, it hurts. And uh, so it's this, this imagery that plays out throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, all these goads. Um, so, and then the other image that he plays on is this idea of anchors, almost like a, a, a tent guy wire or a, an anchoring point. And so you'll see both of those in the end of Ecclesiastes 11 or 12. And he says, the words of the wise are like goads and as you know, nails or anchors, and again, they they prod you, but they're also something you can hang stuff on and anchor your life to. And and so he has a really good study where he he digs into that really really deeply. So didn't have time to do that tonight, but uh, if if you want further study on Ecclesiastes, that is that is one I would recommend. All right.